0: Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, giving all new meaning to taking a leaf out of their book, medieval literature scholars have adopted ecological models to quantify lost works of fiction. Plus, what if you could create diamonds out of thin air? And had a rough day? Let some kindergartners give you a pep talk. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. A new study has found that mathematical models used in ecology can be used to determine how much medieval literature was lost over time. Quoting Scientific American... As ecologists survey a place's flora and fauna, they inevitably miss some individuals. But thanks to statistical models, they can use the specimens they do observe to estimate the diversity and size of unseen populations. And it turns out that the same models can be applied to very different unknowns end quote. In the case of medieval literature, so fiction written in Europe between the 5th and 15th centuries, we already know that a ton of it was lost in fires and repurposed for all kinds of other uses like making boxes or wrapping up food. But knowing how much was lost can help scholars understand more about the era and also could give us some insight into the incredible challenge of preservation that we're facing right now. Between the challenges of digital data and the climate emergency, keeping an archive of our cultural heritage is proving difficult. You've got an enormous amount of data that's lost to things like outdated file formats on the one hand, and then people fleeing extreme weather events without their physical documents and heirlooms on the other. Study co-author Daniel Sawyer, a research fellow in medieval English literature at the University of Oxford, told Scientific American, quote, In the longer run, we as a species probably need to be thinking about how do we preserve and record what we have? And knowing more about what kind of patterns of distribution can help survival of these things is not irrelevant to that end quote. So Sawyer and other medieval scholars teamed up with Ann Chow, an environmental statistician at Taiwan's National Tsinghua University, to apply one of her ecological models to medieval documents. Quoting again, The researchers had access to 3,648 medieval documents. According to the ecological model, these represented just 9% of an original set that would have contained more than 40,000 manuscripts. But this describes the loss in physical documents, not the stories preserved in them. These stories, called works, are not considered truly lost until all existing copies of them have been destroyed. To continue the ecology comparison, a document is like a specific animal, while a work is like a species. And a species is not considered extinct until all its living representatives die. When the researchers applied the model to the works, they found that a much more reassuring 68% of medieval literature has likely survived to the present day. Historians already knew that many stories had been lost thanks to mentions of them in surviving documents or catalogs. The new study matches earlier estimates of how much literature had survived, but it also expands on existing knowledge, says co-author Katarzyna Kapitan, a junior research fellow studying Old Norse-Icelandic literature at the University of Oxford. What's interesting about our study is that it's quantifying a bigger amount of data that allows us to compare data from different regions, she says, and by that contribute to existing scholarship, end quote. And those different regions had different outcomes. Less than 40% of English works were preserved, about half of Dutch and French ones, and then about three quarters of German, Irish, and Icelandic works were preserved. What can account for the difference? One idea is the island hypothesis, which is also drawn from ecology. Island ecosystems are better at preserving their biological biodiversity. And so, Capitan wonders whether the same thing happens with the survival of cultural heritage in island societies. Carrie Menor, a researcher in mathematical modeling at the Los Alamos National Laboratory who was not involved in the study, explains that islands can often have greater biodiversity because in mainland ecosystems, just a few adaptable species can dominate more niche ones. And I suppose we could think about literature doing the same. You know, more unique cultural works could survive and thrive in more isolated communities and would be considered more important to preserve versus maybe a popular work that swept the whole mainland. Mainland continent and was considered common enough to not require special preservation. That's really stretching the metaphor, though, and Menor warns that one weak point in the hypothesis is that Germany joined Ireland and Iceland in having high numbers of preservation. But overall, having a better grasp on how much was lost can lead us to all sorts of these kinds of questions, and more. You know, it really opens up more avenues of scholarship. The team says that some future areas of research could be comparing the surviving literature by genre, looking at whether illustrations led to greater numbers of preservation, and investigating how access to printing presses changed the game. Now, while medieval literature scholars are the first to repurpose ecology's mathematical models for a quite un- related discipline, the team says the models could really be applied for just about anything. Some suggestions, quoting again, the number of known fossils, coins, and pottery could be used to estimate how many animal remains and artifacts remain undiscovered, or even to point people toward new areas in which to hunt for these pieces of history, or for modern applications such as estimating how many bugs lurk in software code, end quote. I mean, this whole study is like a giant an advertisement for liberal arts education you know interdisciplinary collaboration and thinking can lead to some really cool outcomes a startup called ether just raised 18 million dollars in a funding round for their lab-grown diamonds that are made by pulling carbon dioxide from the air So lab-grown diamonds, while a growing field at the moment, are not new. In fact, Gizmodo pointed out in an article last year about the many lab-grown diamond companies that the idea goes all the way back to 1911 and H.G. Wells' short story, The Diamond Maker. Quoting Gizmodo, As the Gemological Institute of America, or GIA, notes, there were a handful of dubious attempts to create diamonds in labs in the late 19th and early 20th century. But the first commercial diamond production wouldn't emerge until the mid-1950s, when scientists with General Electric worked out a method for creating small brown stones. Others, including De Beers, soon developed their own methods for synthesizing the gems and use of the lab-created diamond in industrial applications, from cutting tools to high-power electronics, took off. By the early 2000s, gem-quality stones were still small, and often tinted yellow with impurities. It was only in the last five years or so that methods for growing diamonds advanced to the point that producers began churning out large, colorless stones consistently. That's when the jewelry sector began to take a real interest. End quote. Many of the players in the lab-grown diamond business are motivated by wanting to find a more sustainable or ethical option for diamonds rather than the conflict-fueling reality of the natural gems and a few want to take the sustainable side of things a bit further by pulling carbon dioxide from the air to create their synthetic diamonds. Ether is ahead of the pack by developing a process powered by clean energy and pulling out an additional 20 metric tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for every carat it produces. Here's one of the biggest roadblocks for most carbon capture and direct air capture initiatives. They cost way too much to be scaled up or make much of a dent right now. As an example, Microsoft pays the Swiss direct air capture firm, Climeworks $600 per ton of carbon dioxide. But a luxury jewelry brand seems like the perfect way to actually turn a profit in direct air capture. The diamonds Ether is creating sell for about five dollars to $10,000 or more per carat. And without Ether saying how much they pay Climeworks, they told The Verge that one ton of captured CO2 could translate into millions of dollars worth of diamonds. So yeah, pretty good return on investment. Here's how it works, quoting The Verge. The process starts with Ether purchasing carbon dioxide from Climeworks's facility in Switzerland and shipping it to the United States, where the diamonds are grown. Ether puts that CO2 through a proprietary process to convert it into a high-purity methane, or CH4. That methane is then injected directly into the company's diamond reactors, where a method known as chemical vapor deposition is used to grow rough diamond material over the course of several weeks. The chemical vapor deposition process involves heating gases to very high temperatures under near-vacuum conditions, and considerable energy is required to do so. CEO Ryan Sherman tells The Verge that this process and other manufacturing stages are powered entirely by carbon-free sources like solar and nuclear. Once the diamonds finish growing, they're shipped to Surat, India, where they're cut and polished before being sent back to New York City's Diamond District for sale. Ether only needs a relatively small amount of carbon dioxide to make the diamonds themselves. Think fractions of grams rather than tons. Then, for every carat of diamond it sells, the company says it removes an additional 20 metric tons of carbon from the air, using a mix of direct air capture and other carbon removal methods that involve long term carbon sequestration. End quote. For any of the emissions created from shipping products or from their New York facilities, Ether says that carbon extracted to make each diamond acts as an offset, tipping them into carbon-negative territory. And even though they use some of the language about an individual's carbon footprint and comparing one diamond to offsetting an average American's footprint for one year, and I never love when the onus for the climate emergency is shifted to individuals versus governments and corporations, and even though sometimes startups like this do smack of the dot-com bubbleization of the climate emergency... I still have to say that this is a really interesting business model. You know, They're not only addressing the human rights concerns surrounding diamonds, but also the high cost of direct air capture. Henry Elkes, CEO of Helena, the investment firm that led Ether's recent funding round, explained to The Verge that Ether's approach of turning CO2 into methane and then into physical goods from there could probably be applied to many different industries. But focusing on a luxury good with huge returns first, quote, Gives you the margins to make profitable business, and that's certainly a great leap start. End quote. So yesterday, I shared the excellent squirrel census phone tree, and today, I've got another hotline for you to call. This one will give you a quick pep talk from a kindergartner created by teachers Jessica Martin and Ashra Weiss, along with their students at Westside Elementary School in California. The hotline, named pep talk, P-E-P-T-O-C, gives callers options to hear advice, encouragement, a pep talk, or simply the sounds of children's laughter. There are also Spanish language options. Quoting NPR, Martin says she was inspired by her students' positive attitudes, despite all they've been through, the pandemic, wildfires in the region, and just the everyday challenges of being a kid. Martin said she spoke with her class about the idea of art as a kind of social practice, a conversation to contribute to the world, and something we can all learn from. Their creativity and resourcefulness is something that we all need to emulate, because that level of joy and love and imagination is what's going to save us in the end, she said end quote. And the hotline definitely seems to be resonating. Just two days after launching at the end of last month, they were getting 700 callers an hour. With thousands of calls a day and growing, they are actually now seeking donations to help with the hotline fees, so that is one option when you call now. Another option when you call is advice for if you're feeling mad, frustrated, or nervous, which returns sage advice from the kids, like, if you're feeling mad, you can take three deep breaths and think of things that make you happy. Or, if you're sad and angry, go get a cookie, a smoothie, or an ice cream. I think I will be following that one. And if you press 2 for words of encouragement, you'll hear kids shouting things like, dude, live it up! It's okay to be different and believe in yourself. The students have also been creating visual art to promote their hotline and to encourage each other and their community. It is a really great project, and if you need a boost today, I definitely recommend calling it at 707-998-8410. That number is also listed in the show notes. There is yet another Muppet show coming out that I will inevitably get my hopes up about and then forget to watch, or maybe not this time because it does feature some of my favorite Muppets. Coming to Disney Plus soon is a new series featuring The Electric Mayhem. The Muppets' longtime backing band featuring Dr. Teeth, Animal, Janice, Lips, Floyd Pepper, and Zoot will be joined on the new show by Lily Singh, which makes it even better in my opinion. Sing will play the token human, in this case a junior A&R executive who has to wrangle the band together to record their first LP in 45 years. No word yet on when the show will be released, but in the meantime, you can watch the entire catalog of the original Muppet show on Disney+, Plus, as well as the first original Disney Plus Muppet series, Muppets Now, which was okay. In other weird TV show news, remember that meme in the summer of 2020 when the internet was abuzz with videos of ordinary-looking objects that turned out to be hyper-realistic cakes, Netflix has decided to make a TV show of it. In Floor is Lava style, they have produced an entire game show around the joke. Having found all the bacon experts who specialize in making cakes that look like bowling balls, shoes, rolls of toilet paper, and other objects, those experts will compete against each other while a rotating lineup of celebrity judges has to guess Is It Cake? The show will be hosted by Saturday Night Live's Mikey Day, and the celebrity judges look to mostly be other comedians like Fortune Feimster and Netflix glitterati like Karamo Brown, so admittedly it does just look like a really fun if straightforward show. Is It Cake will drop on Netflix on March 18th, but that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.